Brothers and sisters, take out your Bibles and turn with me this Lord's Day morning to Matthew 18, verses 5 through 7. Let us read the word together. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Amen! to the very first episode of the Millstone Collector Podcast. This is a religious deconstruction space, which means, of course, that there will be mockery and tears and gossip and critical thinking because all of those things are necessary and healing parts of the process. I am your host, Rachel, also known as I Blame Bill on TikTok, and I am so very glad that you've joined me today. Uh, in a minute, we're going to jump into some hot topics, but before we do, and because this is the very first episode, I want to explain in a little bit more detail why it's important to me that this space be safe for mockery and tears and gossip and critical thinking and why I think those are so necessary. So let me jump in really quick with mockery. So... Let's be honest, oftentimes we are uncomfortable with mocking religion. If you follow me on TikTok, then you know that primarily the majority of the stuff that I post, the majority of the content I make is sincere. It's me having conversations with Christians or addressing Christians um, and the arguments that they bring to me. And for the most part, I try to be very sincere and as kind as I possibly can be. However, some of the very first things that I did that went viral uh, were maybe a little bit less sincere and a little bit more funny, specifically my Atheist Sunday School skits in which I retold Bible stories in ways that highlighted how horrendous those Bible stories were. And of course, I did it in a feather robe and crazy amounts of makeup and victory rolls and all the fun and pageantry that that brought with it. And I've since done some other skits that were also definitely mockery. And if you're familiar with any of my merch, you know that there's definitely some mockery there as well. And anytime I post something like that on TikTok, I get pushback, primarily from Christians, but oftentimes from people who are not necessarily believers themselves, which I always find really interesting. People who Christians would attack, people who Christians think are going to hell and think are bad people will often come to the defense of Christians when their religion is being mocked. And this is interesting to me. I'm interested in why that happens, why we're uncomfortable with the idea of mockery. And I think it's because culturally we treat religion as though it is a different belief system than anything else as though it is more sacred than any other belief system, right? We 
are often totally fine with criticizing people's politics. We might think that there are certain places you shouldn't have those conversations, maybe. But we understand that you do not have the right to hold a political opinion without fear of pushback. Of course, you have the right to whatever political opinion you want, but you don't have the right to a space free of pushback. If you believe something politically, other people get to disagree with you. They get to disagree with you loudly, and they even get to mock you for that. And we are so comfortable with this. We do it constantly. We even have built into our government this whole system. I mean, I wouldn't say it's built into our government. It's just culturally built into our government system where we allow comedians to come in spaces around our government officials and mock them to their face. Um, This is like a normal part of the culture where we understand that your belief systems are not free from criticism. And yet for some reason we're uncomfortable with that with religion. I think it's because we have created this space culturally where we treat religion like it's different than any other belief system. Like because it's about a God, it is above reproach. But the thing is, is religion is not any different than any other belief system. And it's certainly not different than a political belief system. Politics is really your opinions about other people and the way yourself and other people should be governed. And religion is the same thing. It's about your opinions about how yourself and other people should be governed. Just not as much by humans, but by a God. But it's really no different. And it affects other people. And because it affects other people, other people get to have an opinion on it. And they get to have a loud opinion on it. So I want to start by saying, yeah, this idea that ideas, religious ideas should be free from criticism is just ridiculous. It's not fair. It's not right. It doesn't make any logical sense. And I think mockery is important. I think it's an important part of criticism. A really good example of of kind of why it's so important, it might sound silly, but I think if we think of the story of the emperor's new clothes, we get a good picture of why mockery is important. So if you're not familiar with the story, really quickly, um, it's a folktale that was written by Hans Christian Andersen, um, and it's about this emperor who is a little bit arrogant, maybe a little bit vain, um, and he loves clothes. He loves having new clothes made for him. He loves them being super expensive, and um, one day... Some not-so-great people show up to town. Some people who maybe want to make a little money um, without having to provide anything. They show up. They're these weavers. They come, and they convince the emperor that they have the ability to make clothing out of a very expensive and rare type of fabric that... um, is seen, can only be seen by people who are actually intelligent and worthy of seeing it. Like if you're actually intelligent and wise, then you can see the the fabric. But if you're not intelligent and you're not wise, then you can't see the fabric. And so they start making this fabric. They start making this outfit for him um, out of this super amazing fabric, right? 
And as they're making it, people can't see it. And the king, this emperor, can't see it either. But no one wants to admit that they can't see it. Because if they admit that they can't see it, then they're saying that they're not wise and they're not smart. No one wants to be thought of as stupid and foolish. And so they all just pretend that they can see it. And by the end of this process, the emperor is riding naked down the streets of his city with no clothing on, right? Because he's being scammed by these two weavers. But no one is saying anything because no one wants anyone else to think that they're stupid or foolish, even the emperor. So they're all just looking at him and pretending that he's wearing clothing because no one wants to be thought of as foolish until one little boy points to the king and laughs and says, oh my God, the emperor, the king over there, the emperor over there is naked, right? And once that first little bit breaks, once once you point out that actually... I'm not crazy, right? You all see this, right? Oh my God, that guy is naked. Then it all breaks apart and everybody can admit that he's not wearing clothing. And it becomes this humiliating experience for the emperor. But finally, the truth is out there. And I think that's what mockery oftentimes gives us. Using humor against ideas, using humor to illustrate flaws in people's arguments, flaws in people's ideas, it helps us to see issues that maybe we've we're pretending don't exist right it helps us to point at something notice the problems notice um, the inconsistencies notice the absurdities of people's belief systems and it helps all of us see that like if one of us can point to it and laugh the rest of us can be like oh my gosh you're you're right how did i not see that before maybe i'm not crazy i thought it too but i didn't want to say it because whatever else humor allows us to see that it opens up a door and of course it's not free um from problems we need to be careful that we're not using humor to harm people that we're not using humor to punch down but when we're talking about power and people who are wielding power, their power against those with little power. Humor can be a way of stripping some of that power away from them, of really leveling a playing field when we can point to it, just like that little boy did. He pointed to that emperor, and in that moment, there was not a person out there who was below that emperor. It brought that emperor, that emperor down to reality. It made him sit at their same level. He was no longer this amazing, untouchable person on a horse who was better and wiser than them. Suddenly, he was just like them. And that is what humor can give us. And that's the power of punching up. Humor is really necessary. It's powerful. And because of that, we are going to sometimes make fun of religion, that there's going to be a space for that in this podcast where we will use humor to punch up. Now, um, there's also going to be tears. (laughs) There's going to be tears because no matter what stage of deconstruction you're in, if you were raised religious and you are not religious now, there's healing that needs to happen and grief and healing uh, are not linear. Um, 
you might feel like you are fully healed and then something new will hit you in a way that you hadn't thought of it before. This happens to me constantly. And I am more than 10 years out from my own deconstruction. Hell, I'm, I'm like 15 years out from my own deconstruction now. It's, it's been a while for me. And I'll still have new things hit me and have a moment where I am grieving something again, grieving a loss again. There'll, there'll be tears. That will be part of the process. And that's okay. Um, that's why we have each other. And that's why we need to talk about it because it helps to know that we're not alone, right? Now, gossip. <laughs> I believe firmly that gossip is necessary. I was raised in a fundamentalist church that told us that gossip and slander were awful things that you should not engage in. Awful, awful things. I heard countless sermons. I could not even tell you the number of sermons that I heard against gossip and slander. I, of course, never heard a single sermon against racism. That never happened. Not a single sermon against misogyny. That never happened either. Not a single sermon against child abuse. Never, never happened. However, I heard many a sermon against slander and gossip. And one of the big reasons that those in power and institutions in power and people in power do not want you to gossip, and they're so hardcore against things like gossip and slander, is that it exposes people who are doing harm. When you're talking about your own experience, when you're talking about ways you've been harmed by another, uh, another person, another institution, it alerts other people around you that they're not alone. That if they have also been a victim of that, they're not alone. This isn't just a one-time experience they had. Now we can see a pattern. When you can share stories, you can notice patterns. And when you notice patterns, you get angry. You get angry and you push back against power. Gossip is an incredibly powerful thing, and it's something that oftentimes we were denied, denied the ability to share our story and to share the ways that we had been hurt. Um, I think it's really important that we recognize that and, and grab that power back. We are allowed to share our story. We're allowed to share how we've been harmed. We're allowed to talk about that. And especially we're allowed to when we're talking about people who have power, when the people who harmed us hold power, continue to hold power, and are still doing harm from that place of power. It's, it's not just okay that we gossip, it's vitally important because that's what gossip is. It's sharing those stories and it's really important that we do that. And then finally, of course, critical thinking. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you why critical thinking is important. But we were told um, that, oftentimes we were told, I was told as a fundy, that I, that I was allowed to think critically, that we did think critically, especially uh, as the kind of fundy I was. Um, I was raised as a Calvinist, and we definitely believed that we were intellectual. We believed... Um, through knowledge, right? We had a lot of knowledge. Of course, we didn't believe that we saved ourselves. Uh, God did that work for us, but um, we had knowledge about our faith and that was ingrained in us that we should have knowledge. In fact, the very first logic class I ever took was in a Christian school. I was taught, taught logic at a Christian school. Um, so I was told that I should be reasonable. I was told that I should be able to think. But 
in that logic class, the first lesson was that we couldn't use the rules of logic against God because God was the creator of logic. God created logic. Therefore, we couldn't reason God out of the equation, right? So they built in to our reasoning skills an exception for God. You don't get to think critically about him. That's the one thing you can't think critically about. And so instead of actually teaching us to think critically, what they gave us is they gave us a set of beliefs that we were told were right. And then we were told we needed to come up with the arguments for why. So we weren't actually thinking critically because thinking critically is starting with the question and then looking for the answer. They gave us the answer and they asked us to find the path, right? We were given the answer and we were asked to use reason to find a path there. That's not actually critical thinking. And that's why it's so important that in this space we do that. And part of critical thinking, of course, is being okay with not having the answer yet. Saying, I don't yet know that. And being okay with not knowing something, not having an answer, and sitting in that space of not having an answer, and allowing yourself to follow the evidence, wherever that may go. But you first have to be okay with not having the answer yet. That's really key. And it's hard. It's a hard space to be in. No one tends to be comfortable in that space. We have to learn to be comfortable with I don't knows. I am still learning to be comfortable with I don't knows. And I feel like being a teacher uh, got me closer to it Um, because I didn't always have the answer and I had to create an environment in my own classroom with my own high school students of saying, I don't always have that answer. I don't know that yet. Let me look it up. Let me find out. I'm going to read about that for you. They helped. My own students helped me get a little bit more comfortable, but I'm still not all the way there. But part of critical thinking, of course, is to uh, find that space and that comfort of not knowing so that we can then look for the answer. Now, all that said, we have got to talk about Halloween, y'all. This has got to be our very first hot topic. It feels like every year there's a big hubbub in the Christian community about whether Christians are going to celebrate Halloween or not celebrate Halloween. And of course, this year rolls around and we get the same hubbub. And I watched a video just a couple days ago that had me rolling my eyes so hard, and I have to talk about it. So, I'm going to make y'all listen to it really quickly. You should not be celebrating Halloween as a Christian, period, point blank. I don't care how you try to mix it up and make it seem innocent or, oh, it's okay. The kids are just wearing innocent costumes. They're bumblebees. They're princesses. Stop celebrating it. This is definitely a holiday that Satanists and even witches have came out and said that this month is full of spells. It is full of evil. The devil is thriving during this month and definitely during Halloween. This is definitely a day that people have openly came out and said that they are happy happy that people celebrate who worship the devil. I seen a video of a Satanist saying that he is happy and pleased that parents let their children celebrate and worship the devil once a year. But y'all, the devil does not care about vulnerability at all. Like he does not care that your child is four years old. That is actually an open invite for him, especially knowing that you're allowing your child to be out and about celebrating something so evil. If you actually look, just go look at Halloween, you know, decorations and all that look at that stuff 
look how evil it is. Like, actually look at it. Nobody should be celebrating Halloween, honestly. It's full of evil. It's full of spells. It's full of witchcraft. It's full of it. There's people who literally practice these things telling you. They tell you that during this month, this is when spells are increased. This is when evil things are increased. This is when the devil is thriving. This is when demons are thriving. You're walking around looking at people in costumes. You're seeing all these evil things. And nine times out of ten, you might actually be looking at something that's actually real in front of you. You might be like, oh, that's a freaky costume. Like, how you see in movies? Nah, in reality, that's real. That's really standing in front of you. You might actually be looking at a demon face to face and you're thinking it's somebody in a costume. Like, stop celebrating this stuff. Have your kids on Halloween night watching PBS Kids. Truly. Be around your family. Have a prayer night. Do a Bible study, if anything. But stop celebrating Halloween because as Christians, you shouldn't be attending a church that even has people dressing up because these pastors know that this time of month is evil. So for a church to actually be letting children dress up and wear costumes and all that, they need to be questioned. Period. Because a real church of God is not going to be celebrating Halloween. Period. I don't care how you try to mix it. Oh, my church is a good... No. You, they shouldn't be doing that, period. And y'all gonna be like, oh, you're being judgmental. No, I'm being real. These churches be allowing stuff and being a part of the world. So just think about that when Halloween comes. Oh my goodness. There's so much here to unpack. First of all, oh my God, please, 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 please. If you're not gonna celebrate Halloween, don't have a prayer meeting. Don't send your kids into a Bible study on Halloween when all their friends are outside trick-or-treating, putting on costumes, getting candy. It's just so heartbreaking. At least put on the TV and cartoons, but even that is just so sad. I say that as a Christian kid who was not allowed to celebrate Halloween. I was a basement dweller. You know, we would turn all our lights off and go into the basement. I didn't get to go around and trick-or-treat and get candy and get, you know, wear fun costumes. Um, And I was a theater kid. So all I wanted, all I wanted was to wear a costume. Just just don't do that. If you're not going to celebrate, make something fun happen. Don't just make them sit in a Bible study for the love of all things holy. That said, (laughs) that said, I find this really interesting. Um, There are various schools of thought around not celebrating Halloween. Different denominations are going to treat it differently, right? You're going to have some, I'm going to guess that this person is uh, in a charismatic denomination of Christianity of some sort, Pentecostal, um, something, something charismatic where they believe in uh, speaking in tongues and in a lot of spiritual warfare. Charismatic churches tend to be very attuned, <laughs> attuned, <laughs> attuned makes it sound like it's real, very um, imaginative when it comes to spiritual warfare in spirits out in the world. And this person literally makes the claim that the people you come across in costumes are probably not even really people, but actual demons. You're not looking at someone in a costume. You're looking at a real demon walking around. And if that does not scream charismatic Christian to me, I don't know what does. It's so ridiculous. It's a claim made with, of course, with no evidence. I'm sorry. Where's your evidence that these are just actual demons going around i mean if we can see them if they're walking around how can we can't test for them how don't we, how can we don't have any evidence they exist in any other capacity it's all just imagination and fear um 
But it's interesting to me that that denomination is going to respond to it. Well, that type of denomination, that that kind of cohort of denominations, the charismatic denominations, uh, might respond to a Halloween, <laughs> a Halloween situation with seeing actual active demon activity. It's a dangerous holiday. Demons are active. Satan is active. She even makes this claim that um, four-year-olds could be like in danger of of demons like attacking them, that they're like open to that spirit even at that age. Um, So ridiculous. No evidence. One, we don't even have any evidence that souls exist. We don't, there's no evidence that such a thing exists, a soul. We are made up of brains. And bodies like there, there's no spirit sense at all. We have no evidence for that. But that said, you know that this kind of responding to Halloween as though it's the issue with Halloween um, is that demons can be attacking you. Interesting take. There are also other Christian denominations that respond to Halloween in an anti-Halloween manner, not because they're worried that demonic activity is actually heightened. Um, they're not scared of like demons getting you or Satan being active. Um, but they're, it's more about um, following God's rules and that God, there's nothing in the Bible that su- should suggest that we should celebrate that holiday in that manner and that we would actually be playing around with um, and suggesting that demonic things, satanic things are good, right? So it's more about a surface level. It's not that you're actually scared that demons are going to attack you if you celebrate Halloween, but it's more about virtue signaling. Um, that would have been a denomination I was a part of, that kind of reformed denomination. Not so afraid that de- demons are actually getting you, but more uh, concerned that God is going to be mad at you if you celebrate Halloween in this manner. So you're not afraid of demons, you're afraid of God. <laughs> like God's going to be the one to get you if you do that. Um, and that would have been kind of more what I was raised with interesting there. Um, I always find these anti-Halloween people interesting. Now that I'm on the outside of that, now that I'm not a Christian and it's not, I'm not in this conversation (laughs) in a way like I have to defend my own use of it or my defend my own celebration of it. Right. And I'm just kind of an outsider looking in. I find it really fascinating. Um, I think there's a lot of, I think, I think that a lot of people, a lot of Christians who come out so strongly, like that speaker, like that content creator did against Halloween, are actually reacting to a world in which they are not happy with what's going on in the culture around them. I think that what happens, and it's just a pattern I've noticed, I have, this is not scientific, I have not tested this, I have no data for this, this is just my own opinion, not based on any facts, so do not quote me on this, but I wonder if the reaction cycle around Halloween and other kind of holidays where we take maybe more secular um elements and imbue it into the holiday. If the reaction against that is because uh, they're so heightened and aware that they're losing cultural ground. 
there are so many people who are deconstructing their faith right now. So many people who are um, leaving religion, leaving churches. Um, some Christians are interpreting this as the great falling away, right? But they're aware that there's more pushback. They're not as comfortable in the world. Um, not as many people are keeping this comfortable space and keeping them in this bubble of safety where they don't have to be disagreed with and they're getting more pushback. Maybe not in real life. They might still live in communities where everyone around them kind of looks and sounds like them. But online, there's definitely more pushback and more and more Christians are having to engage um, with people who are questioning them. They're having to defend their faith in ways they never have before and that's uncomfortable. And I wonder if living in that space is making them um, more aware that they're different and kind of wanting, making them more excited to be different. Like they want to be revolutionary. They want to feel like they are different than everyone around them. And almost like they also want to be different than other Christians. Like they're the more holy Christians. Like some of those other Christians, if there's churches out there that like let you celebrate Halloween and that's crazy, you need to be even more holy. Almost like a religious OCD maybe. Um, I have I have some wonderings around that. I'd love to see that studied. I'd love to see data on that because I... I'm curious about it. But yeah, at the end of the day, all of these fears that there's demonic activity, that there's demons standing in front of you, that children's souls are, are like open to being messed with by Satan, all of that is so ridiculous on several levels. The first one, of course, what I've already mentioned, that we have no evidence that anything spiritual exists at all. No evidence that souls exist. No evidence that anything spiritual exists. It doesn't exist. We do not have that evidence. It is just claims. Um, and claims built on ignorance of how of how brains work and all of that. Um, but but not only that, it doesn't make any sense. Like if you were to just look at it logically, if you were to just accept that, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that souls do exist, that spirits are real, why on earth would Satan and demons be more active on that day? What makes them more active? Why would that be the day they were? It doesn't even, it doesn't make any sense. If anything, it's counterintuitive. Like everybody's looking for you that day. Everybody's expecting, people are afraid now. They're heightened. They're fearful. They're looking around and, and, and scared all the time. And Christians especially. And Christians, of course, think they're the ones that Satan's really going after. I mean, they're definitely the main character, right, in Satan's story. So they're always afraid they're the ones being targeted. But Christians have the fear going. They're, they're aware. They have this heightened fear and awareness. Why would that be the day Satan would go for them? Wouldn't it make more sense that Satan would go on the days that their, their guard is down? Like attack them as they're coming out of church <laughs> or like get them on a, on a Christmas morning when they're not thinking about Satan at all. They're not worried about Satan. That would be the day you'd go for, right? Like this doesn't even work as an act of warfare. Like that's not, that's not how war works. They're not coming when you're expecting them. Come on. It just doesn't make any logical sense. It's just so much lore, so much imagination, it feels like grown-up Harry Potter fans, and I say that as a poor millennial who is maybe, you know, 
I could go on and on about my house. Like, I say that knowing I am that. But it feels like grown-up Harry Potter fans who have just taken this whole thing too far. It's so much imagination. And I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for people who have gone to such extremes in their imagination. It's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And it's sad. It's sad. We get so few holidays, especially in the U.S., right? It, everything is so driven by capitalism. Everything is so driven by how much labor you can produce for, for people who own the businesses, for the wealth creators, right? And we get so few holidays and so few moments of joy and happiness. And to strip yourself of those days, of the few holidays we have, to strip yourself of the joy just makes me sad. It makes me so sad. And as a kid who lived through that kind of Christian environment, celebrate the holidays that you're given. Take joy in the holidays that, that are there in our culture. It's just, it's so sad to be so afraid all the time. Um, yeah, I just, it, may, it makes me sad for the children of those individuals. It makes me sad for those kids. And honestly, at the end of the day, I'm just waiting for those kids to deconstruct and find their way over here. We'll have a giant Halloween party. And I promise everyone there will actually be in a costume and not be a real devil. <laughs> Dope disciples, man. It's Dope Disciple time, which means it's time to turn the spotlight onto a writer, a musician, an artist, an activist, or a content creator that I think you should be checking out today. Today, I want to turn you on to Flamey Grant. Flamey Grant is making a lot of people angry. A lot of people angry these days. Mostly the fundies angry these days. We love to see it. They are a drag performer and musician. You can find them on Spotify and iTunes or at the Dove Awards because they have been charting on the Christian music charts. Amazing. I love it. I love to see it. And the music is good. It's good, y'all. Um, you can, once again, check them out on TikTok uh, and, and listen to some of the songs. Um, but I just recommend you look them up on Spotify. Look them up on, um, on iTunes. Buy some of the songs. Check them out. It's really, really good music. And it's great for people who are processing their grief or wanting to reconstruct what religion even means to them. As an atheist, of course, I'm I tend to not listen to a lot of Christian music. I still love I still love some of my old hymns. I got to admit, I love a good old hymn, but it's it's not what I go to normally. Um but Flamey Grant's music is really about pushing against some of those most toxic parts of Christianity. And so if you're in your journey, especially if you're in one of those early stages of your journey where you're not sure what you believe yet, but you are uh, definitely not comfortable with the status quo, check them out. Check out their music. Um, there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheekness about the performance aspect, um, which I love to see. I love humor that's brought into it. But the songs themselves are very sincere. And they make you think. 
So um, I'm a follower, I'm a fan, and I think you should be too. Definitely go check them out. Uh, Their handle is at Flamey Grant on TikTok. Welcome to Fruits of the Spirit, the segment where I and my co-host, the suspiciously self-proclaimed Professor History, dig deep into the annals of church history to uncover forgotten tales that disgust and horrify. All right, um, Professor History, I would love to know a little bit more about you. Do you have a degree in history? Professor History does not have a degree in history. Oh, you are a professor, though. Professor history is not a <laughs> professor at all. Does professor history plan on referring to himself in the third person the entire time? <laughs> no, professor history does not. Are you regretting this decision now? <laughs> a little bit, yes. <laughs> all right. So uh, your code name for this podcast is professor history. Yes. But you are not a professor. No. Nor do you have any degree in history. So... Um, Tell us a little bit more about you, why you wanted to be a part of this specific part of the podcast. Um, I really enjoy history. I always have. Um, when I was religious, it is the thing that I always went to and the history of it that drew me in. So um, I wouldn't say I know everything there is to know about it, but I know a lot. And I actually still like to learn more. Awesome. And um, just... For the sake of transparency, uh, Professor History is my husband. We are, in fact, married. Um, so, you know, he's getting some romantic benefits from this. Benefits, I uh, guess. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yes. I mean, I feel like there's. So I am being paid. You are being paid in okay. some ways. Excellent. Yes. Um, this got weird really fast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But yeah, I wanted to talk on our very first Fruit of the Spirit segment uh, about something related to Halloween. But to start, you have to know uh, a little bit about my own history. So, uh, Professor History, you were raised in what denomination of Christianity? Um, Non-denominational, I guess. It was more just... Kind of whatever. Okay. I disagree with you that you were raised in a denomination. <laughs> I did never, did not know the denomination. I always referred to myself as yeah. non-denominational because... You guys kind of hopped around a yeah. lot. So you were part of the Gothard movement for a little while. For a little while, yeah. It was a short time, but you were part of that for a little while. Then some non-denominational churches and some like Baptist churches and... Yep. A lot of that. I, however, was definitely a Reformed Baptist the entire time. We knew the denomination we were a part of. We also knew the (laughs) denomination everyone else was a part of. We had that. Um, And properly judged them, depending on Absolutely. Absolutely we did. And um, as a Reformed Baptist, uh, we were mostly Baptist- and also mostly Reformed at the same time. We were Calvinistic Baptists, so we we held to the five points of Calvinism, um, otherwise known as TULIP. That's the acronym. 
And then we also believed in believer baptism. And that's like the large part of what we got from Baptist. Uh, We believed that, you know, adult, believing adults should be baptized and not children. A lot of Reformed churches, which are Calvinistic, a lot of Reformed churches believe in infant baptism and we did not. So that was where we got like kind of our Baptist from. Um, So that said, our church did not celebrate Halloween. A lot of fundy churches didn't. Um, And there's kind of like this cultural thing where churches will like celebrate it and then they'll go through periods of time where they're like, we need to be away from the world and different and separate from the world and and like decide not to. It kind of fluctuates. Our church did not celebrate it. However, they did do a harvest festival around Halloween. Uh, Usually it was, you know, the Saturday before Halloween or after Halloween or whatever. So weird. Yeah, they weren't great. At ours, we didn't get to have costumes. One year, they allowed us to wear costumes. Uh, Best year of my life. Um, They never allowed us to do it again. It was only a one-year thing. And normally, our, our harvest festivals, we would do in the gym at our church And there'd be games, you know, different parents would be like hosting different games and you'd play the game and win candy. And there's always a cakewalk. I always loved the cakewalks. Did you do cakewalks? I've never done a cakewalk in my history. Seriously? Yeah. That's so sad. I feel like we should do one. I love cakewalks. Can we do one as a family? If you're not familiar with a cakewalk, it's, um, it's kind of like musical chairs. Right, you're like standing on a spot. People are like, the music plays, you're standing on a spot, you move around the circle, and then the music stops. And if you're not on a circle or a pad or a square, whatever the standing thing is, then you're kicked off and then keep going, right? Until the last person is standing and that last person gets to pick a cake. And literally, it's just women of the church. And of course, it's always women because men don't cook. <laughs> of course. Why would you be in the kitchen? You're not barefoot or pregnant. Exactly. But women of the church would make cakes and they would provide the cakes and then this would be the game and you'd be able to bring home a whole cake it was fun i loved that one um that was great what was not great about our harvest festival is that we always had one very dark room devoted to a movie you go and watch a movie if you were ever so inclined a black and white horrible black and white movie about martin luther because Because we don't celebrate Halloween. That is the devil's attempt to lure us away from celebrating the true spirit of the holiday, which is Reformation Day. (laughs) Which is why we're going to talk about Martin Luther. Not really about Reformation Day, but definitely about Martin Luther today. Specifically, and Martin Luther had a lot of scandals and a lot of stuff we could talk about. Um, And we'll probably end up going back to him many times. Definitely. (laughs) As as we need to in this series. But today we're going to talk about one thing in particular, and that is Martin Luther and his role in the Peasants' Revolt in the 1500s. So, Professor History, tell us a little bit about that time period and what was going on with the Peasant Revolt. So, as some background, um, the during the early, what would you call it, 1500s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there were several rebellions around that time, and all of them were kind of pivoted on this piece of the nobles and the clergy, and everyone wants a piece of the s- serfs' um, rewards for their work. 
but the serfs were starving to death and they were completely not able to just move forward in life. And Sounds familiar. Sounds a little <laughs> bit familiar to today, yes. Um, but so one of the things is specifically in the German area is that the German people did not like how all of the Latin um, clergy were coming into their area and demanding all of this money that they would have to pay them um, the 10% from or to the church. And we talk about it as 10%, but that 10% didn't actually go to the church. It just went to the wealth of the clergy people. And the clergy would live glorious lives like the nobles and the serfs would barely be able to eat. And there were several rebellions before that. There was the Knights Rebellion and there were uh, other things. But in that time period, there was a lot of serfs that were just very upset with their lot in life. So Martin Luther is existing in this time of kind of tumultuous uh, political uprisings, right? Um, Lots of wealth at the top and a lot of very poor people at the bottom. Once again, sounds pretty familiar. And Martin Luther um, is having some problems. He's not really necessarily having problems with that social aspect, though. He's having problems with the church itself. So Martin Luther is looking in at the church, and one of the big, the first things and biggest things that he has a problem with is the issue of indulgences. So indulgences were this idea that people could pay money to get out of... um, out of hell faster or get out of purgatory faster or get out of things like that, right? It was this use of like finances to be able to do a little bit more of what you want in the world. And um, Martin Luther saw this as non-biblical, not a place in the Bible where this was allowable or in any way the way God intended it, and also saw it as just kind of a way to line the pockets of the religious leaders. So he had a problem with that, and he had a whole lot of other problems too. And he, uh, he famously... Also, he also oh. wasn't the only one who had problems oh, with absolutely indulgences. This was, this was a common theme of that time period because the... Fairly certain that the Pope of that time had recently in, uh, allowed indulgences, and the reason that they, he had done that is to uh, finance uh, wars with the Ottoman Empire and with um, uh, other powers just to be able to kind of line his pockets and make it so he could pay for soldiers. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of like prosperity pastors now, TV pastors now who who say, you know, if you send me $5, we'll send a prayer out the for Lord you. The Lord will bless you if you line my pockets. Yeah. It's a lot of like buying prayer stuff. Like that kind of stuff still exists. Um, and it, it's just... It's shady, right? It's just shady stuff. It's it, We're side-eyeing that kind of crap. And and Martin Luther was definitely side-eyeing that and was not the only one. Thank you. Um, but he had some other issues, and he famously uh, nailed his 95 theses, his 95 issues, um, on the wall of, of a church, or on the door of a church. Personally, and I am celebrating that this year by dressing as a Viking. What does that have to do with it? It's It's... <laughs> Halloween. I mean, come on. But what does that have to do with that? Come on. <laughs> okay. Sure, <laughs> Professor History. Thanks. <laughs> 
But Martin Luther, as I was saying, <laughs> he nailed those 95 theses uh, on the door, right? And when he did that, it was an act of um, kind of bravery, right? He was standing up against a really powerful political force because the church was so conjoined uh, with the state. Uh, there was really, it was almost impossible to separate them. That was an act of defiance against power. And he became a bit of a symbol for a lot of people in Germany at that time. And peasants included. The peasants looked at him and saw him pushing against authority and thought, he's on our side. He's a rebel just like we are. Not only peasants, but other clergy yeah. thought this at the same time, yeah. too. Yeah, people thought... And people would be following him, thinking, okay, you are definitely going to be helping us with this... Yeah, with this revolt. You're, you're pushing against authority. So they're thinking this is this is a progressive person who believes in, you know, rights for us. He's pushing against this oppressive power. Um, the problem is that Martin Luther didn't see it that way. He did not see it as a push against all power. Um, he was very specific in the kind of criticism he had. And he really felt that... The only time you should stand up against power is if it is spiritual, a spiritual issue, right? So if someone's getting something wrong about the Bible, then it's really important you stand up against it. And if it's not that, if it's just about silly human rights issues, then that is not something you should ever stand up against. What did it. they call that? They called it ecclesiastical uh, something. I gave a specific word to it. Sure. I'm sure there is, and I'm sure we don't have that. Yeah. Correct. Um, but this was very much influenced by his own theology. Um, two really important pieces of theology, in fact. Uh, the first one is that he felt, um, like I already kind of stated, that the spiritual needs to be very separate from the worldly, that there is these, these two different realms, and there's the worldly concerns, the fleshly concerns, the body, and then there's spiritual. And the body would be, you know, those silly serfs who are, you know, starving to death. That's a secular body concern that doesn't matter. That's a worldly concern that doesn't really matter. Um, and spiritual concerns are all that biblical crap and all the stuff about a soul and what you're getting right about where you die, when you die and where you go and all that stuff. And those are two separate things. And he thought the only one that mattered was the spiritual. So that's the first part of that theology that really matters. And the second part is that, much like many uh, evangelical Christians today, Martin Luther thought that uh, God was going to come back real, real fast. <laughs> the end times were upon us. He did not think uh, that he was going to die. He thought God was going to come back before that happened. Um, there was not time to wait to make he, the church change. Yeah, He needed to make the change now to prepare for the arrival of Jesus. Yeah, he thought you had it was so vitally important that we get the theology right because God's coming back right now. And also at the same time, all that body crap doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if people are being oppressed. It doesn't matter if they're being harmed. It doesn't matter if they're starving to death. None of that matters because God's coming back and the flesh doesn't matter. So those two things were really important to understand about his theology, to then understand how he reacted when the peasants revolted. 
Because they did, right? Um, all of these small little skirmishes and small little uprisings and stuff that was happening in Germany at that time kind of blew up and the Peasants' Revolt started. And they cited Martin Luther. They said, like, he gets us. That guy over there gets us. Remember the one who pushed against authority and like totally nailed those 95 theses against the wall? Oh my God, he gets us. He also thinks we need to have rights. And Martin Luther was horrified. And all of his, all of his uh, disciples, as it were, like uh, Thomas Munzer and some of the others were spouting these exact same things, mm-hmm. but they had gone in the direction of rebellion and luther had gone in the direction of reform yeah there was definitely disagreement there thomas munzer is a a really good example of one he was um he considered martin luther a mentor at the beginning um of his life as a student and then during the peasant wars he ended up really feeling both of them feeling like each other were mortal enemies Um, by the end of the peasant wars because they disagreed so heavily on this issue. And Munzer ended up dying um, during this and definitely influenced the Anabaptists. But that's a whole other issue we're not going to get into right now. Instead, we're going to talk about these peasant revolts because they revolt. They totally cite Martin Luther as like one of their... One of their reasons, one of their inspirations, he's a leader there too. And Martin Luther is totally horrified by this. And he's horrified by it, not just because he disagrees with them, but because he feels like he's going to be, like his work in reforming the church is now going to be dismissed because it's been politicized and it's, it's, by it's, these peasants. It's very interesting because it seems like in the beginning of the rebellion, he was almost on the side of the rebellion or rebels. And he was mm-hmm. writing papers and saying, oh, look at these nobles just soaking up all this money and leaving nothing for their serfs. They're not doing anything yeah. for he was the critical. works of Jesus. And he was then, critical of them. Then he would... Then he completely switched gears and said, okay, all those rebels, make sure they die in the name of Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely started at the beginning criticizing both sides. It wasn't that he was necessarily on the side of the rebels, but he did think that they were right, that these things that were happening to them were unjust. It's not like he was celebrating what was happening to them. He thought it was unjust and he was acknowledging that it was harmful and, and not a comfortable life for them. But... He criticized both sides. He criticized at first. He wrote criticisms for both the noblemen and the peasants, though the ones for the peasants were longer. <laughs> he had more words to say towards them. But as the fighting started, um, he really went fully in support of the noblemen, not because he necessarily agreed with what they were doing, but he agreed that they had the right to do it. And that's really key. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther specifically said that the serfs did not have any biblical right to ask for money, for freedom, for human rights, because the Bible supports slavery. He says that in his writing. He says the Bible supports slavery. It says that humans can be owned by other humans, and therefore the serfs have no biblical right to ask for anything different. That was Martin Luther. 
And he's also right. The Bible does support slavery, which is why you shouldn't use the Bible as your moral compass. But that's not the direction that Martin (laughs) Luther went in. Instead, he said, y'all need to shut up. And worse than that, he didn't just say to the peasants that they needed to stop. He then began calling for their death. Um, And in really... Graphic, graphic, nasty ways, yeah. being completely supportive of the way that they would be caught and tortured. I, yeah. I mean, he thought just it needed horrible to be violent of being and immediate, sawn in half, and just awful things. Yeah. He he wrote very explicitly that they needed to be completely and utterly squelched in the most violent ways possible, so that no one else would come up behind them. That they needed to be made um, an example of, honestly. And Martin Luther had his way. <laughs> the peasants lost their revolt. Uh, how many of them died? Um, in the battle that uh, Thomas Munzer was captured in, I think that 10,000 died there. But historians are kind of vague on this term and trying to completely understand it. They think that somewhere around 100,000 um, peasants who were actually combatants died. And somewhere around 300,000 died from either... Um, military activities, meaning they were raped and pillaged, you know, like the uh, saying goes, or just died from the farms being destroyed and um, starving to death after all of these battles. Yeah. And in large part, Martin Luther was responsible for a lot of that. He encouraged it. He wrote support for it. And... That's not just us looking back in history and blaming him. Martin Luther himself acknowledged his own responsibility and not in repentant sort of ways. He acknowledged his own responsibility and said it was the will of God. It wasn't, he was responsible, but not really. God was ultimately responsible because God was working through him. God put those words in my mouth. So it's actually God's fault. Yep. And which is must have been an absolutely horrible thing because he had friends who were murdered in the most gruesome ways because of what he said. People who had been friends. And then he had called for their death, like Thomas Munzer. And he even said about Thomas Munzer when Thomas Munzer died, he said that that was evidence that he was actually on the devil's side. Because the devil wouldn't win, the devil would lose. And so the fact that Thomas Munzer was killed means that he was wrong in his take in this. Which makes no logical sense at all, because then you would have to say things like, well, does that mean Jesus was wrong in his take because Jesus ultimately died? And of course not. They would use, you know, they'd say, well, he rose again, and then there was a religion off of it, and all kinds of that stuff. It doesn't make any logical sense, but that was the argument that Martin Luther used at the time. And there you have it, folks. That was our very first fruit of the spirit, you know, where we dig deep into the annals of church history to uncover those forgotten tales that disgust and truly horrify. You're horrifying, Martin Luther. Thank you, Professor History, for joining me. All right, friends.
friends, that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, If you have any suggestions for hot topics for us to cover, you can always drop us a note. You can contact us on our website at www.millstonecollector.com. That's www.m-i-l-l-s-t-o-n-e-c-o-l-l-e-c-t-o-r.com. See you next week. Thank you.